Marketing can be an incredible force for good. It can inspire and motivate and make our world more just, equitable, and inclusive. But too often, marketing perpetuates the status quo for a select few rather than disrupting it for the greater good of all. This show looks to change that. Join me, your host, Erica Mills Barnhart, as we usher in a new era of marketing, an era of marketing for good. All right, welcome everybody to the Marketing for Good podcast. I am very excited to have with me here today, Stephen Robinson. So Stephen is a philanthropic advisor at the Seattle Foundation. And his little bio says, as a philanthropic advisor, Stephen brings contemplative practices and rigorous qualitative methods, not two things that you often see coming together. So out of the gate, I love it. It's very you, Stephen. <laughs> uh, and he uses these two things to shape conversations and decisions. He draws on these tools as he advises families and individuals on effective philanthropic strategies to support community interests, realize philanthropic impact, and unlock their full generosity potential. Now, you know, we were chatting a little bit about this. Yeah. People who work in the foundations, there's like this mystique. Oh, you know, it's like you work for a foundation. So will you share with us a little bit like how <laughs> how you got into the mystical, magical world of working for a foundation? Yeah, you know, it's a question I get often. Uh, and I think my top level sort of headline around it is I'm bad at math. And that's why I'm in philanthropy. I did the Peace Corps Master's International Program at the Evans School. And when I got back from that, uh, I added up all the credits that I needed and you know, took the corresponding amount of course loads. And a week later, I went back and looked and I had actually added wrong. I needed four more credits. And so at that time, there was only one course that had only met once and that was philanthropy 101. And so I, you know, emailed the teacher and she was kind enough to put me in her class. So I showed up the next morning and um, I mean, really it's, I never thought that I would be in philanthropy. I never thought that a person with my background would be valued in this space. And that's proven to be somewhat true. But also I think that the, the core of philanthropy is something that is, it, it's really important that people like me are present in this space. And, you know, when I was reading through some of the coursework, it became very apparent to me that, you know, one of the things that's really important in a program officer is that they're able to do their own internal work, right? Like, you never want to be standing in between an organization or whatever it is that you're sort of fighting for and their impact, and program officers can oftentimes play that role and end up actually doing a lot of harm. And so it requires a person who is able to notice sort of in real time, oh, I'm actually doing harm here. Or actually, you know, like this is how I step out of the way. And a lot of the readings that I was doing were focusing on that. And I realized at a certain point, I realized this is perfect for me. You know, I, I have this history of contemplative practices. I love and thrive in community. And I all I want is for um, our world to be better than it currently is, because there's a lot of harm being done for no reason. So why wouldn't I do this as a career? And 
you know, I think a lot of people have that sort of revelation. The, the leg up that I had was that I actually did practical work with the director of family philanthropy through the Evans School. And so over the course of six months of working together, we had become really close, you know, mentor, mentee almost. And, and she sort of shepherded me into a spot at the Seattle Foundation, which was incredibly generous of her. And, you know, some of the things that she taught me, uh, <laughs> I now find myself really, you know, going to bat for others and teaching them. And a lot of it has to do with language. A lot of it has to do with uh, matching the language kind of of the oppressor a little bit and, and speaking to power using power's words. Will you say two things I want to follow up on? Will you say a bit more when you said, we don't see people like me, quoting you, yeah. um, in, in philanthropy very often. What do you mean by that? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I have a, a variety of overlapping identities that, um, so I'm, I'm half black, even though I have a white presentation. For those of you who are visually impaired, I'm sitting in sort of a white room um, with a wine-colored sweater. Uh, I have a white appearance. I'm wearing glasses, um, but I am half black. Uh, I'm also gay, and I was raised in a you know single mother household. Uh, all of these things sort of stack up to a background that is not really conventionally seen in our society. Mm-hmm. Say. mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a lot of intersectionality right there. <laughs> yeah. A lot of things overlapping. <laughs> <laughs> overlappy, very overlappy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but is it fair to say, because because I think that this will become in, uh, important as we continue the conversation, that you, I, although you are white passing, for the most part, you identify as a black man? Uh, Why? Well, I, I identify as biracial because I think okay. um, there's many ways where uh, my blackness is very present. There's many ways where my whiteness, my the privilege that comes with walking around in white skin, is also very present. So, you know, we we don't deal very well in in our binary culture, no, no. <laughs> things that are just clearly non-binary. And and I feel like my race is, or my my impression of my own self, um, as it regards to race, is is very non-binary. It's okay. very thank yeah. you, thank you. Yeah. That's really helpful. Okay, I, I want to go to code switching. Yeah. Quickly, however. Not all listeners will necessarily know what you mean by contemplative practices. Yeah, of course. Um, so another overlapping identity of mine is that I was raised Buddhist. And um, so contemplative practices or contemplative practices are practices that um, have essentially the, I mean, they're all based in, in mindfulness or meditation. It's ways of um, stopping. Mm. In your you know cycle of thought, uh, creating a, an intentional gap so that whatever your reaction is can be held, and you can also give a corresponding response that's not just reactionary, right? So a lot of times our personalities are actually just a buildup of all of our experiences from life, and not all of that experience is helpful in every <laughs> context, right? And so cultivating a practice of being able to stop, take a breath, and recenter on who you truly are, not just the experiences that you've had. Um, a lot of times, you know, we confuse our defense mechanisms with a personality. And those aren't the same thing, you know? So, so and the way you disentangle that, or the, from my point of view, is um, through practice. 
just straight up practicing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't come easily to most people to be able to create that space. I mean, what, what we are naturally inclined to do is to project. <laughs> like, well, I like being on whatever it's going to be, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. So other people must also feel the same way. And and I think just, just to make a tie, since this podcast is mainly about marketing, that ability is gold when it comes to building personas and really getting into the hearts and minds of your target audience. You know, there was a, I did an interview with Maria Ross on this podcast about empathy and the, and the role of empathy, which I know is not the whole thing, but just for, for listeners who are like, they're, you know, they're intrigued by that because we could have a whole, you you and I, Stephen, today could just talk about that and its role, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about different stuff. But so for listeners who are intrigued by this, go listen once you're done with this one, of course, to the episode, <laughs> uh, with Maria, with Maria Ross. And I think listeners can probably, um, why I wanted to call that out is because you were, you were speaking, Stephen, to like one of the things that is important for you in your role is to be able to sort of translate and calibrate to the donors that you're serving. Um, so I think it makes sense, like how much better you would be at that if you have this contemplative practice and this ability to kind of create that gap. Okay, no, can we talk about code switching? Please. And your ninja level skills in this department. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you joined, um, you're always so gracious when I say, hey, will you come like talk to one of my classes? And you've said yes every time, I, I think. So thank you for that. Most recently, you, um, along with Sumi Bach-Kincaid, came um, and spent some time with my undergraduate students. And you said something, and just in the course of that conversation, which went many, many different directions about, and I, and I think what, what you, the context in which you mentioned it was sort of early on in your days in philanthropy in particular, how you realized that you could use the language of philanthropy to your personal advantage. And in doing that, you were mindful of the trade-offs inherent in that. Yeah. We say more about that. That was just such an interesting, intriguing observation. Yeah. Yeah. I guess first, just to sort of give a little bit more context, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I work with a lot of donors. I work in a lot of spaces that are um, inherently white and kind of institutional, but in no way can I speak sort of for the broad, like all caps philanthropy. Yeah, 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 yeah sure. And you know, we should probably start by, by explaining what code switching is. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, do you, do you want to take a stab at it? No, or? You go. Okay, great. So code switching is any time you use language that's appropriate to the person who's listening, even though it may not be appropriate, the most appropriate way for you to communicate. So it's, it's like this fun way that we put an extra burden on people who have um, identities that are not conventional to the place that they're in. Uh, it's like extra work. It's like fun extra work uh, to be understood. It's important extra work though. And, and I think any person of color or, I mean, any person who, you know, sometimes I look back at like Leticia Nieto's work on. Um, Love her work. She, uh, powerful work. Just powerful in, work. We oh, will put links to Leticia's, yeah, in the show. Great, notes. great. Um, yeah, she has those three articles. If you could put links to those. I mean, that like. Ooh, good idea, Stephen. Yeah. Of, of her work. Um, but I look at the way that she sort of blocked out 
in her like addressing model, um, how she's blocked out in any, any way that you, you know, whether it's age, whether it's race, whether it's, um, there's all these ways that we're either marginalized or we're overvalued by the society that we live in. And anytime that like you, you step outside of the overvalued column, you have to code switch into the overvalued column. I don't know if I said that right, but um, basically when you're at the margins, you have to speak um, in the language of the people who have the power and that's code switching. Of the majority. So, I mean, maybe one way to think about it simplistically is if you're in the minority, you find yourself having to speak to in the way that the majority of folks or, and, or because it's not actually always majority, but the folks who hold power. Right. Um, would have yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> <laughs> yes. The majority so, minority thing. I, yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Fair right. enough. It came out of my mouth and I was like, eh, that actually doesn't hold, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's more about power. Power. Yeah. It's about who holds power. Yeah. And actually yeah. I, um, I'll just share. I mean, I didn't want to, to explain code switching because the honest truth is as a very privileged white woman, I have not had to find myself code switching very often in my life. And it was in reading some of Leticia Nieto's work and she has these, I think it's seven categories. It's seven or eight categories, yeah. you know, so race, gender, socioeconomic class, mm-hmm. um, religious affiliation, even if you weren't religious growing up, but you know, uh, so there's a number of those. And, yeah. Na- nationality. And actually because, so, so the only two where I wasn't, in, you know, in the power position were that I'm a woman. Um, and also I was born in Canada, mm. which, you know, sounds a little like odd, but there was a, a pretty big phase in my life where that really, I, that, that, that for me, I realized was the, the way in which I could, access the feeling of the burden of code switching for a period of time. Um, but also that faded away as my Canadian accent faded away <laughs> for the most part, <laughs> faded away, although I still have some quirks. Um, but, you know, for a lot of, especially, you know, white gender norming folks, cisgender folks, we just don't, this isn't a part of our lives. We don't carry this burden. So that's why I didn't want to be the one to explain. Yeah, yeah I appreciate that. Yeah. I, mean, I, I yeah, I appreciate a lot of the I, I appreciate a lot about you, Erica. That's why I keep showing up. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay, so now we've explained what it is, and I'm ho- I'm hoping that people get it. Do you have some concrete examples that you can offer? Oh, yeah. Just uh, to really put you on the on the spot, but I know you're totally. Coming. You know, the way that I would talk to you, I mean, even just the way that I'm speaking to you, holding myself, uh, because this is a more professional space if if you were like a gay friend and we were just kikiing over a cup of coffee you know there would i would be gesticulating more i would be uh, there would be elements of my personality that are not currently present and it's not that they're not invited to this space like there's no they're just not necessarily appropriate and the things that i'm trying to communicate wouldn't necessarily come through in the cleanest way mm. and i think a lot of code switching actually is pretty subconscious. Mm. You know, some people are really good and able to consciously, you know, and, and being a biracial person, I, I might consciously switch into uh, using different language or sort of holding myself and, and holding my values in a different, uh, through a different prism, you know, side of the prism. 
if I was in in black company versus white company, and and some people are really good at doing that consciously, but I think mostly it's actually a, a subconscious uh, extra bit of work that people do. And it's part of why like being a person of color is exhausting in this culture. <laughs> you know, I mean, just think about like this extra bag of work that you have to carry around with you of, of like, okay, well, I can't use my language or, or people who um, don't speak English as their first language. Right. Like, it's, it's very similar to that. Yeah. And I appreciate you pointing out sort of the somewhat professional <laughs> setting that we find ourselves in. And I think that might be another way for white listeners to be like, oh, that's right. I, when I'm chit-chatting with my friends, mm-hmm. that's different than when, when I'm showing up. Um, and just to, to be aware that some, sometimes that's tougher and that there's this extra level because if you're white, you know, when you're switching to your professional, you're still white, you know? And so you're yeah. still, for the most part, you know, it's the, the dominant vernacular. So let's talk about jargon. Shall we move to jargon? Yeah. And I want to talk about, you know, eventually, so, so part of that conversation that, that, you know, got us here today was talking about how you became aware relatively early on of code switching and and then talking you talked about jargon in particular and that you were mindful of the fact that in doing that in some ways you were perpetuating you know oppression and yeah. or patterns of oppression so I think for especially if this stuff is new and I can imagine at this point some listeners are like whoa I mean I remember when I first learned about code switching I was like really yeah wow Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe some folks are having that moment. And I, I want to say to, to, to everyone, all of this is a journey. Yeah. So if, if this code switching stuff or whatever is new to you, great. Like, don't feel badly about it. I learned stuff. I mean, I get it wrong a lot <laughs> still, um, but that's okay. Like at least we're, you're on the journey and that's yep. important um, as well. I like to make things, you know, examples are helpful. Mm-hmm. As an academic, I tend to really live in the theory land a lot because I can just fill in the blanks with my examples from doing this a long time. But jargon, so so jargon is so important. And we talk about it a lot when it comes to marketing and fundraising and all of these things. And the reason I really want to shine a light on it, this is my international hand sign. For those of you who can't see, it's a really high tech <laughs> hand sign for shining <laughs> light on um, jargon. So especially when you're talking to external audiences, unless you know for darn sure that they know the jargon that you're using, my counsel every time is going to be just don't use it because it can be, it it ends up making people feel excluded. Uh Now, conversely, jargon can, you know, it can be handy in two ways. One internally to, you know, in a, in a culture community or organization, you know, if you know the jargon, acronyms, by the way, uh, are a subset of jargon, then it can actually be efficient. It's like shorthand. Uh-huh. But it, it could also be used in its most nefarious usage, I would say. It is used to purposely exclude people in the like better light version of that. It is used to make people feel included. Right. Like a part of something. So I just I wanted to say all of that because jargon is really tricky. Like it's not straight up horrible, uh, like some stuff is his, but it, it it's it's very nuanced. I think you have, it's one of the ways in which you have to be so strategic and intentional um, as a you know within organizations. So let's t- let's talk about some of the most used jargon in philanthropy 
And then, because that way we can talk about, okay, in what ways does this perpetuate some of the very things that we're trying to dismantle? Let's start. So I'm going to say a word, Stephen, and then will you please, for listeners, like explain what it means? And I actually want to start with the word philanthropy. Yeah. Um, so a, a lot of the work that I do is with families. And the very first thing, especially if it's a multi-generational family of wealth, the very first thing that I do is put up a slide that simply says philanthropy. And then we go from the youngest person up and we define it together. And, you know, the Seattle Foundation, we have we have our um, also I'm not speaking on behalf of Seattle Foundation at any point in this podcast, just to make that clear. Uh, <laughs> but Seattle Foundation has a really great um definition of philanthropy. I tend to break it up into two words, phil and anthropy, um, meaning the love of humanity, mm-hmm. because I feel like that's a little bit more expansive and it gives more room to play. You know, I think a lot of what people on on that side of the table are trying to solve for is, you know, how can I live into my mission? And that looks a lot of different ways. It looks like volunteering. It looks like money. It looks like Uh, time on boards. It looks like, you know, hopefully more and more, it looks like reconstructing the way that they're making wealth. Um, Because I think that that's really the key to to unlocking philanthropy is actually doing less harm on the front end. But a way to bridge into that conversation is by talking about the resources that they're giving out, which is really a lot of the work that we do. Um, So, and, and, you know, more broadly, I think people don't really have that sense of what philanthropy is like in the nonprofit space, I hear philanthropy just um, used, you know, like if you're a director of philanthropy for a nonprofit, that means you're a major gifts donor. You're, you're supposed to be um, uh, sort of kicking it with the big wigs, you know, that's, <laughs> that's your job uh, versus a fundraiser. And so it's, it's sort of synonymous with power um, and then more broadly, I think people think about philanthropy either as just being, you know, just charity, or they think of both top hats walking around and, and shiny gowns. Yeah. I love that you pointed out that philanthropy is about the love of humanity. And it's not just about writing a check or, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not transactional. Right. Um, and it doesn't need to be limited just to money that it really, because I think a lot of people are like, oh, I, you know, I'm, you know, I don't have money to, I don't have a top hat. Right. And, you know, all <laughs> right. things. we want to go on record as saying you don't need a top hat to be a philanthropist. <laughs> Bottom mm-hmm. line, if you love humanity, however, you're showing up to do that, yep. you're a philanthropist. And I, I think that's really beautiful. So, okay, next word. When people say strategic giving, what does that mean? Because implied in that, like you hear it a lot. And implied in that is that there's unstrategic giving. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's actually a, a large part of what I do is helping people to create strategic plans for themselves. So oftentimes, you know, Seattle Foundation, again, we have like a, we have a tried and true philosophy and curriculum that we take a lot of our philanthropists through called Giving with Impact. Um, and it's, a, you know, sort of a modulated learning cycle that, that people can go through first identifying your values and interests moving on to trying to understand the sort of levels of impact that occur. Um, So a lot of philanthropists don't really have a direct relationship or understanding of how nonprofits work. So just understanding that there are different ways that organizations work. Some are direct, some are preventative, some are systems changing or reinventing. And it's all sort of 
impactful, but the emotional output is different and, and whatnot. Um, uh, and the tangibility is really different too. So um, I, you know, strategic giving means that a person has actually thought about right. what they're doing. And it's intentional. It's intentional. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, you know, philanthropists are humans. So the, in humans, um, I know I don't wake up in the morning thinking about, you know, all of the various things that I could be thinking about in terms of our society. Philanthropists are the same way. And so mm -hmm. oftentimes they'll just do what is in front of them or where their relationships are. And so, you know, strategic philanthropy, and I also, I always encourage, you know, there's multiple different ways that philanthropists can operate and they should budget accordingly. So your, whatever is your strategy. So, you know, my strategy is climate impact or climate justice and impact associated with that. And so that's, that's really where my strategic giving is, you know, that amounts to a hundred dollars uh, <laughs> versus like my, um, my personal relationship giving, which is in smaller amounts, you know, $50 here, $50 there. Uh, so ultimately it's about building a budget where your relationships are honored because those are important. Mm -hmm. um, and also impact is honored. Uh, Cause that's. Well, that's a nice way of thinking about it. Yeah. I, I, th I think you surfaced something that was important though. And I'm hoping that people kind of got it, which is, all of us have multiple identities and we shift in and out of them throughout the day, right? So when you wake up, you don't, you're not like necessarily waking up with your donor identity front and center. Right. Maybe if we all slept with top hats next to our beds, <laughs> then we could roll out of bed, stick on the top hat. That yep. seems really highly unlikely. But you know, this, this concept I think is really, is very important again. And there's this term called mutable identities. But it basically means we shift throughout the day. So you may wake up, and if you're a parent, then you're you you're like you're primarily a parent, and then you go to work, and then you you know you're in your professional um, identity is forward, and then we we all go through all of this. And I would say one of the biggest marketing errors I see um, nonprofits make is that they they have this working hypothesis that when somebody reads the appeal or the newsletter or whatever, that their primary their hat that they have on is the donor hat. Yeah. And so, I mean, your experience with donors is a bit different because they are there, there with you, donor hat on, <laughs> like that's forward. Um, but that's really not often the case. And when we look at the, I mean, when we look at the the evidence about how how often people actually do any research around their giving, it's not a lot. Right. It's not a lot. And and by the way, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But yeah, I think it is it is something to surface. <laughs> For sure. I mean, we we exist in an attention economy right now. And unfortunately, you know, the the things that are pulling attention towards giving and towards um, their love of humanity are dwindling and they're not front and center and they're fighting with other things that are that are laden with dopamine, you know? <laughs> and we either have to figure out how to create a tool that gives the reader a dopamine hit, or you have to go through a, a broker of, of some sort. And so a dopamine broker, a dopamine broker, <laughs> or a person who is, um, who exists in the world of philanthropy. This, you know, my role oftentimes comes in is just sort of being like a, a sorting hat for on behalf of donors. So I can uplift things to them, but CPAs and attorneys and, you know, all every 
great gift planning officer that I've ever met, you know, operates in the nonprofit space simultaneously to the wealth advising space. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and for, for listeners who were like, ah, oh, that's all oh, that sounds overwhelming, but I still want to oh. <laughs> kind of sort of make maybe smarter decisions. I mean, there's GiveWell, there's Candid, there, I mean, there's lots of places to go. Right. I have to say, when I was preparing for this, so I have one more um, jargon word that I, that I want to talk about, and then I want to go to some of the specific ones that you uh, were talking about when you joined in class. So um, Catalyst, for a long time, has had a very bad rap. However, I came across this definition, or actually the, what it really means, and it made me feel a lot better about the word catalyst. It said, when it comes to science, a catalyst speeds up a chemical reaction and allows for less energy to be used during a reaction. These substances exist even after the reaction occurs and go on to speed up other reactions. I'm just saying, I, I mean, I, I feel bad. And that made me feel a little badly for the word catalyst, which it tends to hold sort of a self-congratulatory space, I would say, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. when organizations are using it, they're like, we'll be a catalyst. But this gives you sort of like a, like, I don't know, is it going to speed up a reaction? Right. You know, like you could, like, that's, that's so much more concrete. Right. A lot of these words um, actually have, you know, some really good heart and meaning behind them. <laughs> they do. They, do they get like... overused. Yeah. You know, think about um, synergy. You know, the, the idea that two things uh, can come together and create a reaction that's larger than those two things could on their own. That's a great concept. Who that's doesn't cool. synergize? <laughs> but, yeah, you could synergistically catalyze something. <laughs> huh? Yeah. I don't know. Can, 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 can somebody synergistically? I think so. I think so. And I think we should all try to work that into our, our day-to-day -day conversations. I don't know, are we synergistically catalyzing in this meeting? <laughs> Which would maybe just be so goofy that it would lighten things up. Okay, now lay on us, because I don't work in philanthropy. I, I direct a center about nonprofits of philanthropy and many other things, but I don't, like, I'm not on the inside. And so uh -huh. you shared a few terms and I was like, oh my gosh, what? What are you talking about? Do you remember what they were? Yep. I remember one of them was the multiplier effect. Yes. Yes. So talk to us about the multiplier effect. Uh, well, it's also, um, you know, I think people talk about it also as knock on impacts. Oh, that was, that was the thing. I was like, knock on impact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was the one. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where that language comes from. Um, it seems sportsy, but basically it means uh, it's like a dom domino effect. Um, the multiplier is looking at um, you're you're looking to do activity A and it's going to have impact B. But then what happens as that impact sort of ripples throughout its intended sort of lane of of impact? <laughs> That's a lot of the word impact, but <laughs> in a lane of impact. Yeah. Well, and I just made that up. So don't go ahead and use that. That's oh, but we will, Stephen. We will now be using that. <laughs> Are you staying in your impact lane synergistically? <laughs> um, yeah, and and so that's that's the one that I remember. But what other terms do you have? There was something. Well, the knock-on effect was definitely one of them, because something about that just seemed so, yeah, inside ball, right? Like who? And I was like, do people like you're in a meeting and people are talking about the knock-on effect and. 
Uh, and also, to, you know, back to kind of this idea of, of different language being used very intentionally in different contexts. So maybe knock-on effect is common language for nonprofits. Um, I have, I mean, I personally haven't heard nonprofits using it. So if, you know, it feels a little bit, and now we're going to step, you know, toward this conversation about how is language used to perpetuate oppression? Yeah. Intentionally or unintentionally, right? Because if it is true, which it, it may not be, I may just be the last to understand this term or to hear the term knock on effect. But because foundations, then foundations fundamentally are in the business of giving away money to support communities and causes, if they're using that language, you know, so they hold the power. Mm-hmm. Nonprofits are the ones who are asking. So, you know, there's a power dynamic that is uneven in this scenario for the most part. Well, so if there's language being used within foundations and nonprofits who are trying to speak the language, right, as a way to say, right. we understand, if they don't know it, that seems to perpetuate the power dynamic. Yeah, well, exactly. And, you know, if you take a look back at uh, how philanthropy got its start, mm-hmm. it's not hard to, and so how philanthropy got its start was essentially people who were amassing larger and larger amounts of wealth than had ever historically been known, decided to give back some of that wealth. And so that means that incredibly powerful people created, you know, essentially banks of of power uh, and then allowed those power banks to then distribute, you know, according to whatever strategy or whatever they wanted. But that creates a, a power differential just from the start, from the very get-go, we're talking about very powerful people who create very powerful entities. And the whole structure is, I mean, I I reflect on like Audre Lorde's, um, the, you know, the tools of the oppressor will never be used or the master's tools will never be used to undo the master's house is how she terms it. I, I think about that from the perspective of philanthropy, like the thing that we're trying to do oftentimes is undo harm that's been created in our society. The thing that's created that harm oftentimes is the very thing that's created the largesse that's, that necessitates philanthropy or that creates the opportunity for philanthropy. And so that's just, I mean, that's, that's one way um, that's one way that philanthropy just sort of perpetuates harm. So what do we do about that? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, again, I reflect on Leticia Nieto's work because she talks a lot about, I mean, essentially what her, the tool that she gives us is a, is a power tool. Um, so it's understanding power where it's, where it overly accumulates and where it doesn't exist, um, where it has to be, you know, sort of, grabbed. Um, and so when she, when she looks at um, people who are further away from, from power, her whole thing is about recentering and, and empowering oneself. And so I look at like Foulet's work with, um, you know, nonprofit uh, with balls and now nonprofit AF. Oh, that's right. Yes. 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 <laughs> um, and other organizations, like there's a, a, CEOs uh, of color organization for Washington state. There's lots of different organizations that are working to rebalance power and understand their voice. And, and I, I think all of that is, is like the systems change work again, like looking back at that, 
that sort of um, gradient of work that can be done, right? There's like very direct work that is tangible. And then there's a sort of more upstream systems change work and reinvention. I think a lot of the systems change work is going to come from entities that are fully empowered and uh, leaders that are fully empowered. What does it look like to be fully empowered? Concretely. I, I think, you know, again, we have, um, I'm, I'm sort of talking in the abstract, but I think people who are fully in their bodies are fully empowered. This is where listeners are like, ooh, he really <laughs> is higher level. <laughs> That's no. what who have a contemplative practice say. <laughs> no, you know, I think that there's a lot of forces in this world that are trying to push you out of your body and trying to make you feel, and this is where marketing comes in, right? Like marketing wouldn't exist if people felt like they were good enough because there'd be nothing to market to there. You know, you have to have that deficiency. And so our culture is, is really um, predicated on a lot of deficiency. This is part of what this podcast is trying to disrupt. Right. <laughs> right. Just, right. Just, just, but if I point on it, <laughs> but that, I mean, that, that genuinely is right. Like it's why it's called marketing for good because so right. much of marketing has been used to perpetuate yuckiness. Totally. Totally. And yet there are tools inlaid in marketing that make it very useful for getting out, you know, a clear message and for, um, for marketing, <laughs> for communicating effectively. Well, and, and for, uh, you know, inviting people into actions, yeah. whether on the, you know, as a consumer, as a donor, as a whatever, that, that truly, that truly are beneficial, right? That, that, that start to perpetuate cycles of, of good as opposed right. to cycles of bad, you know, bad, that's a, you know, it's very binary and trite, but, but that is kind of the idea. I mean, it's what keeps me uh, motivated to, to do the work is to be looking for the examples and that also within the way that you were doing the marketing itself. Right. Right. That it's sort of like to the greatest extent possible, you're, you are trying to get to Kant's moral imperative. Right. That, which is this idea. I just taught the FX last week in my undergrad classes, like friend of mine for me. And I will also say, I know like every time I teach ethics, which I teach it in most of my courses at some point, students at the beginning of the class are like, ethics, yay, you know, and like they're good sports about it. And, and it tends to be one of those things that is most pointed to in student evaluations. Like I love that class on ethics. I think it's really important, right? So if we think about the ethics, so constant moral imperative is basically that the, that the means have to justify the end, like that the means themselves, the way in which you were doing whatever you were doing have to also be moral, which is juxtapose that to classic utilitarianism, which, which would say the means justify the end. Right. So in the end, if we, you know, plant more trees, help more kids do whatever, oh, but okay, sure. Maybe our, our, our HR is all over the map, uh, you know, or maybe people were even harmed or, or back to your sort of bigger meta picture on this, like, do people feel seen? Do they feel heard? Do they feel like they truly belong right. in the space, whatever the space is that is being used to create the products? Right. And I think of, I had um, Aaron Dowell and Marlette Jackson on the show who wrote the article uh, for, the, so, so they do uh, culture, they call it culture audits. They get very excited about the, about the audits, but they wrote a piece for Harvard Business Review that um, the title I think was, 
I'll get this little off probably was um, woke washing won't cut it for your company. Right. So um, definitely, you know, in that space. And so in that conversation, you know, they, they are so, I mean, they're wonderful on so many levels. One of them is like, they are concrete. They are going to like, it is like, are you looking at the, you know, if you say that you value diversity, equity, inclusion, what's your turnover rate? Uh-huh. And that, and that's so much of it. We were talking about how a lot of this is like not sexy, but you kind of have to operationalize. Like you have, you have to operationalize ethics. You have to operationalize valuing diversity, equity, inclusion, liberation, you know, which increasingly people are going, are going there. Yeah. Um, so let's bring this back to language. Power. Oh, I was going to go to language. We can go to power. <laughs> no, let's go to the, let's go to the language of power. Yes. Let's go there. Let's combo meal it. Ooh. Ooh. I think that was synergistic. What we just yeah, did I think so. <laughs> right, there, right there. What does the language of power look like in, in philanthropy in the space of doing good and what might it look like? Like if we are trying to go towards centering all voices or, you know, I guess I, I go also to like, what is it, what does it look like for everyone to belong? Yeah. And tr- like truly feel that. I mean, this is where I really, you know, I think about like Octavia Butler and I think about um, Adrian Marie. I think about all these authors who are really trying to be creative because essentially like, you know, we, we can't, if we work within this system, like this system was created really intentionally to produce the outcomes that are currently being produced and which we are walking through a world of, you know, and that goes to how things are literally constructed in our environment, but also in our internal environment. You know, a lot of the structures that we're currently undoing through a lot of DEI initiatives, the internal structures that we're undoing, those were intentionally created. And so we need, we need creativity. We need somebody who can think completely outside of that box, which we live in. Um, And this again goes back to contemplative practices because oftentimes what it requires is that we're able to actually identify where where our, how our mind is working. And if we're going to be applying values internally, I, again, I, I always make a point to say that there is the personal liberation work that a person needs to go through. And then there's the work, the more tangible work that you're talking about, um, which creates uh, equitable outcomes. And those are tangible things. Those are, you know, who's working in what level of power, you know, you can record some data around it. You can show how these things have shifted over time. You can look at Seattle Foundation's um, history of giving and see how we've changed our trajectory of giving towards uh, BIPOC communities. You know, you, these are tangible things that can be adjusted. But then okay, just also just the, so that we're, we're walking our talk, not everyone will be familiar with BIPOC. Uh, Black Indigenous people of color. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so BIPOC was created because people of color oftentimes leaves out, um, even within the group of people of color, black and indigenous experiences, because they are so, uh, com- I mean, they're, they're not completely different, but the experience of walking in a black body or an indigenous body, I can't speak to the indigenous part, but the, those are, um, independent and, and require their own sort of centering mm-hmm. in, that acronym. So that's why they're pulled out and it's called BIPOC. 
So I, I was, uh, for anyone who's watching this on video, I smirked a little bit when you were talking about creating equitable outcomes and, and being able to gather data around that. Evident, you know, white culture loves data. We love evidence. So I think that I'm, it's an example of an opportunity, I think, right? To just wonder like, why, why are we collecting data? And I say this as somebody who works in academia, like I love me some evidence, right? We just produced this report about the impact of COVID on nonprofits. I'm not saying, so I'm not saying, you know, data and evidence isn't powerful. Right. I think it is, like I said, an opportunity to be like, wh what do we really need to know? What do we really need to know? And what, what are our, our sources of knowledge going to be? Yeah. Can be like a very specific actionable thing. You know, and I know a lot of listeners to this are, you know, hold leadership positions in their organization. So that's something that you could concretely take away from this conversation and start doing. It's just one, you know, starting to wonder mm -hmm. about those things. Um, starting to wonder about why it is or isn't okay for certain people to interrupt other people. Right. Um, that is one of my biggest things I have to work on. And it was like a, <laughs> a huge eye opener to realize how often, you know, and I like, I'm fast paced, so I could like make a bunch of excuses, but fundamentally I get to. Yeah. Because of the, the, the positional authority I hold. Yeah. Um, it becomes very obvious. Right. And I'm not saying, obvious maybe isn't the right word, but, but it, it is illuminating. And so again, just to be wondering and observing. Mm hmm like how these shifts might take place. Yeah, I think it's also important to note around the data, you know, who is collecting the data and who's setting the agenda for data collection, you know, because uh, I know from a community philanthropy point of view, as well as and this played out in my international development background with Peace Corps, you know, it's, it's who's at the table at all times, you know, so who's setting the, who, who's created the value system from which you're working? in general, you know? And oftentimes it's it's done by leaders and leaders are people who have been acculturated in a particular way. And that's, you know, that's one type of value system and that's an important type of value system. But I think right now what the world is calling for is for leaders to listen. And, and that's, I think that's like a central point. So, and, and, Again, one of the ways that you operationalize that, one of the tangible things is by creating cabinets of people who are directly from community who hold the ear of the leader. And it's like a very tangible way of, of actually getting that input. Um, and then the, the internal part, because again, I always break it into what's happening internally and what's happening externally, what's the tangible and what's the, the sort of internal world. And the internal part is... I mean, I think every leader needs to go to therapy. Yeah. <laughs> like you need to know where you got your storylines from, from your own history. And you need to know how you can reach your own liberation before you can actually be an honest broker in the world. You know? And especially it's, it's very difficult when, it, when you're adjacent to large amounts of power um, because people relate to you in a way that benefits you and we're comfort beings. So we like to stay comfortable. And so if, if everyone's catering to us all the time, it's really hard to be self-critical and say, oh, well, maybe, maybe I didn't say that right. You know, 
because it, it, re it requires you to do the work for yourself because nobody will call you out. If you're on the other side of the, the power imbalance, people will call you out left and right and you become better for it because you have a ton of feedback. But the further up in the echelon, and this, this relates to the way that philanthropy works in general, there's not a lot of people calling out philanthropists, you know, or philanthropy. And partially it's because it's a, it's a top of golden pedestal. It's on top of, you know, and, and that golden pedestal is multidimensional because it's also a golden pedestal that's associated with resources, but it's also associated with our own moral virtue, you know, in some regard. So I talk to people at dinner parties and whatnot, and they're like, oh, you're saving the world. And I'm like, <laughs> no, that's no morality. This is, you know, this is, it's the moving of resources. It's not inherently a moral thing, you know, but, but it is, but at the same time it is. You're moving money to move power as Edgar Villanueva would say, right? I think it's yeah. Edgar who said that, mm -hmm. right? Okay. I think so. I think it sounds like something he would say. Yeah. <laughs> we'll fact check that, but I'm going to attribute it to Edgar. Yeah. And I think this, you know, I hope that people are hearing that, you know, it's sort of a riff on this idea we talk a lot about on the podcast of it, like you have to have internal alignment before you can have external execution, like high, high quality external execution. For the most part, we're talking about that in the context of, you know, internal teams. Um, you know, there was just a great podcast with Beth Castleberry, um, who she talked very explicitly because she works for right now for Fred Hutch, but she's worked for big systems. I'm like, how do you get people internally aligned? Because you need that so much for externally. But what you're saying is much more personal to my ear is much more personal. So I, I am hoping listeners will just take a minute to wonder about like, what might that look like? If, I, if I'm not already doing that, how can I, and I, I think you know, to your point, the higher you get up, the more intentional you have to be about like really having truth tellers around you mm -hmm. and building like structures. Yeah. You know, building structures um, so that you, you are getting that feedback and then, you know, the higher up you go, being really intentional about what feedback, you know, and I'm, I'm air quoting feedback because I don't just mean formal, like, and it's your one year review, but I'm, just, I'm trying to echo and underscore what you were saying about folks who hold power, I think often unintentionally are quote unquote giving feedback mm -hmm. to those to those who aren't um, in power. So I think there are a lot of different ways to start this work. I hope that listeners are inspired. I, to do the work, I'm totally not on your level. Like I, you know, I meditate, I got my journal hit and miss on both of those these days, but I like, I try to be, I'm fairly, I would say my most consistent contemplative practice is making my cup of tea in the morning. You know what? It is part of why I love tea. That is really great. I mean, I don't want to, I also don't want to come off as though I'm some ethereal being who's like constantly meditating or something like this it is also a moment to moment reality you know that that is just different for every person i love that you have a, a check-in practice around making tea i try not to do anything else except make the tea and that, that takes three to four minutes because i like my tea very strong and there is something <laughs> very nice you know about the tea and the da, 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 and then um, yeah and I used to like, cause you know, take every opportunity to like do better. And I, I guess it was, you know, a year or so ago that I was like, you know, I'm just going to build this in. It's yeah. going to be about the tea. And some days that's as good as it gets like the rest of the day, just, <laughs> just like a downhill. Mm, staying present is hard. Yeah. Being present is really hard, but so important. 
I close every interview by asking folks the same, the same question. So it's about inspiration and motivation. So motivation is about taking action. So uh, when we look at the root of words and inspiration, if we go back in time, originally meant to take breath. So we need both inspiration and motivation. And I'm curious what, what inspires you and what motivates you to keep doing this work? Yeah. My inspiration right now, I, I was mentioning a little bit before uh, in our pre, pre-conversation uh, that I've had a lot of babies be born into Ooh, life recently. So jealous! <laughs> yeah, and you know, I, I think it's almost trite to say that babies are inspiring, but they are. They're so new. And there's something about the fact that they don't know all the systems that they, you know, they could be born into any configuration of a society and they would thrive. So there's something just so open and completely vulnerable about a baby that I just find incredibly inspiring because we were those babies, you know, and we have the opportunity to shift our world by reclaiming that mindset of, of you know, everything can be new. So that's my inspiration uh, motivation. I think the thing that keeps me motivated is every single time I walk through, um, I, I live in Rainier Beach, and every single time I walk anywhere, I just am more and more motivated. You know, there's so much genius around me at all times. And I feel like I'm sitting on a secret because it doesn't seem like the genius that I'm seeing is necessarily valued all the time, uh, especially when I talk to people, you know, I'll say, I'll say a little bit about where I live or, or something. And um, people are like, Oh, you know, and there is such beauty in, in so many places. And so I find that very motivating to sort of um, center in my community and, yeah, keep, keep moving forward because there, a lot of people need all of us to be moving forward, especially, you know, those of us working in the environmental space, like, you know, if we, if we don't work hard right now, we may not see a 2030, you know, or I mean, the earth will see a 2030, but humanity may not be present on that earth. <laughs> so you started with babies and now you're ending with doom and gloom. <laughs> Yeah, I find them to be equal. <laughs> <laughs> you you got to hold the tension. You got to hold them both, which is hard. Yeah. It's going to be hard. Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for being here. Listeners, thank you for sticking with this conversation. Um, you know, some of these conversations are like, it's like, you know, tripping along and it's light, light, light. And we're talking about, you know, things that are easy. And I think there, there are going to be pieces of this that really give people pause and um, hopefully an opportunity for reflection. Maybe you'll be fully present when you make tea or coffee next time. Never. <laughs> I always appreciate time with you, Stephen. So thanks for, thanks for covering out time for this. And to listeners, as always, do good, be well, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Marketing for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about Claxon University, how to make more impact in and for your organization, or hiring me to speak or coach, go to klaxonmarketing.com or reach out at info at Again, thanks for listening. 
and thanks for making our world a better place.